Welcome to Gold Ribbon Conversations, the podcast created to support families fighting childhood cancer in Ireland. Six children, adolescents and young adults are diagnosed with cancer every week in Ireland. And the Gold Ribbon, which illuminates precious light and love and courage and compassion, is a symbol of strength and solidarity for each and every one. My name is Sinead O'Moore, and it is my privilege to bring you these episodes on behalf of Childhood Cancer Foundation Ireland, a charity funded by and led by parents of children with cancer, who know that one of the greatest sources of support for this fight is conversation. Throughout this podcast, I talk to survivors, fighters and parents who have lost, as well as the experts who care for our children's health and happiness. Yes, we talk about the fear and the sadness, but we also talk about the hope and the friendship and the community that exists here because you are not alone. As a non-government funded organisation, Childhood Cancer Foundation Ireland values every single donation while on its mission to help more children survive cancer and thrive as adults and support all those dealing with the long-term effects of illness and trauma. You can help by sharing this podcast and by texting GOLD to 50300 and donating four euro or visit childhoodcancer.ie for more. This show would not have been complete without talking to a doctor who fights alongside families. Consultant pediatric oncologist, Dr. Sarah Curry, joins me for this final episode of this season of Gold Ribbon Conversations. We don't talk in detail about the specifics of treatment plans because every diagnosis is unique. Instead, we talk about human things, like the connections her and her team make with their patients, the joy of good news, and the compassion when they deliver bad. We talk about how as a parent and a doctor, it's essential to stay professional, but impossible to block out empathy. Medicine might seem clinical, but for those treating our children for cancer, they bring their heart as well as their knowledge to work every day. Dr. Sarah Curry, thank you so much for giving me your time. I'm sure it's very, very in demand at the moment. Um, But I think this is a really important conversation to have because you are one of the people that parents meet on their journey through treatment as a consultant pediatric oncologist. And I think it is just really important for us to have a little conversation and have parents understand what they might expect through this journey. So thank you for joining us today. Oh, thanks so much, Sinead, uh, for having me talk to you uh, on Childhood Cancer Awareness Month. And for all the mums and dads out there listening to this podcast, um, I should say that first and foremost, I'm a mum myself. I have two kids. John is seven and Robin is five. And when they let me leave the house in the morning, um, I'm a paediatric oncologist and I work with a really large team as part of the National Children's Cancer Service in CHI at Crumlin. As a working parent myself, okay, I know the juggle. And I know how really challenging it is to turn off one part of yourself and turn on another part of yourself. As a mother working as an oncologist, caring and supporting our little, our little children that go through this treatment, 
how challenging is that for you, the person, not just you, the doctor? Um, well, I'd be completely lying if I said there wasn't any overlap. Um, and I think that anybody who works with children and young people that have cancer would be lying if they said they didn't bring it home and think about their patients late on into the evening and in the night. Uh, you know, when I first meet patients and their families, there's not a single time that I don't put myself in their shoes for a few minutes. Uh, I think what experience has taught me over the years is that I quickly have to take myself back out of those shoes because understandably they're terrified, they're shattered at the mere suggestion that their child might have cancer. And somebody in that room needs to be in control and to give them a plan and to give them options and to make a firm recommendation so that that family know that they will be held and carried on a journey which is just absolutely a nightmare for most people out there. So I have to say it, it does affect me, affect me greatly. But in that moment, you have to just assume the role as the oncologist so that you can help them in what's a devastating situation. And then also show up for the patients that exactly. you relationships with and who are exactly. now trusting you. And, exactly. you know, it's um, I'm sure they are long days and weeks, but hopefully more good days than bad. Definitely more good days than bad, Sinead. You know, um, if I was talking to you 20 or 30 years ago, I wouldn't be able to tell you the types of figures I can tell you now. And there's really between 180 and 200 children and young people every year that are, get a new diagnosis of cancer in the Republic of Ireland. And every single one of those children have their diagnosis confirmed and their treatment plan um, you know, put together by the National Children's Cancer Service at CHI at Crumlin. Um, so now, thankfully, the vast majority of our children are long term survivors. And that's not something that oncologists would have been able to say even 30 years ago. And I feel very fortunate. But on the flip side of that coin, I don't think any of us will rest until we can say all of the children that we meet are long term survivors. So it can be a very bumpy road and all we can do is walk next to the families. Um, we're there for the horrible times, you know, at, at diagnosis, rarely if, if children relapse or even in the setting where thankfully not too often, but a child might die from their disease. But we're also there next to them to celebrate the clear scans. We're there to get the pictures of their first day back at school. And I feel really, really privileged to be in the position where I get to walk next to these families and form such close relationships with them, because really that's um, that's the part of my job that I find most fulfilling. You said something to me before we recorded, which I think will stay with me for a long time. Around that feeling as a parent when your child is diagnosed and you, the parent, have to hand over control to this team mm. and this treatment plan. Mm. And almost take a step back in mm. in what was your your primary role to be in full control. You now have to hand that over, and how challenging that can be. And I, I can't, you know, I I I'm with these patients and families every single day of my life, and not a day goes by that I just don't think, how do you do that? Like, how do you do that as a parent? One minute everything is fine. The next minute you're being told that your child has a life-threatening illness and maybe a week after that somebody is presenting probably what seems like quite a complex treatment plan with side effects that sound terrifying and we're telling parents you need to be in this place at this time we need to give this treatment 
um, and suddenly all control is taken away from that parent and their lives are just topsy-turvy. It's inevitable almost that one parent has to give up their job and suddenly daily life as they knew it is completely different and there's this constant worry and fear in the background. And then on top of all of that, as soon as the child has been diagnosed, then they may be discharged and given a whole new set of things to look out for, some medications to give on a daily basis. And it's absolutely just so overwhelming. Now, thankfully, we do have, as I mentioned previously, uh, you know, a very big team here at the National Children's Cancer Service. So, you know, our families have an awful lot of education before they do come home to empower them with the knowledge that it's ever so slightly less scary. All of our families have phone numbers that they can contact the team here 24 seven should they need any advice. All of the families have dedicated nurse specialists so that they have somebody that knows them well at hand if they should need them. Um, and on a whole, we're a very um, accessible team, I would say, but that just doesn't take away from the complete upheaval that all of these families feel at the time of diagnosis. And fear. Complete gut-wrenching terror. I would say. I mean, you know, nobody wants to hear the word cancer mentioned in the same sentence with their child, um, not least to be told that they might have it and then a confirmation that they do have it. Um, and even just hearing that word, I think immediately when we have that first meeting, the vast majority of parents probably switch off and don't hear anymore. Um, so quite often we have at least two or three meetings at the beginning when we meet patients first, you know, first to introduce the diagnosis. And we may actually need two or three meetings before we can even say what that might mean or what the treatment plan looks like, because it's just so much to even comprehend for a mommy or daddy. But how brilliant that you recognize that and you have systems in place that are there to show compassion to parents who aren't processing it because they're just they're in fear. Mm -hmm. And well, I, I like to think that we try to do that. I mean, of, of course, with the best will in the world, there is no sugarcoating it, is there? I mean, I don't think there's any good way of telling a parent that their child has cancer. But in my experience, I find um, that I just really try to talk to people like I would someone to talk to me. And I think it's really important to be uh, forthright and direct and give very clear information about the diagnosis, but also about what to expect and what the options are. Now, options is another very interesting thing because almost always now, it's, it's a new era of medicine, isn't it? Uh, whereby, you know, 30 or 40 years ago where you know, the old white haired professor would come in and say, this is what we're going to do. Um, you know, that day is gone. And now what we tend to do is we will come and we will make a recommendation. But because parents are so enlightened and with the ease of information, access to information out there, um, inevitably, a lot of families will find other treatment options online. Um, and I love informed families, actually, and, and, and then we're able to trash out the pros and cons of different treatment options. And I will always come to the families with the recommendation because I see that as a very important part of my role. And it means that you're giving you're giving control back to the parent, but you're also everyone is informed in this. And I imagine that's very important for the patient as well. If the child is at an age with which they can use their voice. 
absolutely vital. And I think we especially see that in our AYA oncology, which is an adolescent and young adult oncology. Um, and they're a very special group of patients, you know, at that time in your life when you're supposed to be gaining all of this independence and hanging out with your friend all the time. And really, you think your parents know absolutely nothing. And suddenly you're forced into this terrifying situation where you're told you have a life threatening illness. And suddenly you're in a hospital bed for days on end, hanging out with a parent who you think knows nothing. <laughs> so as you can imagine, it can be a little bit of a recipe for, for disaster. And they're a very special group. And we're very fortunate actually at the moment to have a new colleague, Dr. Sherelle Alkin, who is the clinical lead for developing this very special area of oncology, which is um, adolescent and young adult oncology. Um, also the new children's hospital campus will be really instrumental in developing that area because at the moment what we do is we treat children up to the age of 15 years 364 days it's very specific i know but once we're on the new children's campus it will be actually up to 19 years and 364 days um, and I think we're all very excited about that. And we feel um, that there will be lots of benefits to certain patients in that age group uh, to treating them within um, an adolescent setting as opposed to a purely adult setting. One of the most important aspects of considering our children and, you know, advocating for them and their needs was covered in the first episode that we recorded with Nikki Bradley. She is a survivor who had cancer in that category you just spoke about, in that young adolescent category. And we talked openly about how she, felt, how she feels as though her fertility rights weren't prioritised. Mm -hmm. Now, it was, it was many, many years ago. But I'm interested to learn, what it, what's it like now? And actually, what is put, being put in place now to protect our children and their future. Mm -hmm. um, and again, that's a whole sort of new and evolving area of pediatric oncology called pediatric survivorship. Um, the good news is, is that we have many more survivors than we ever did in the past. And that's the very reason that this is becoming such an important area. So in recent years, there's been lots and lots of research done talking to survivors of childhood cancer. And the single most source, biggest source of regret for survivors of childhood cancer is the fact that they weren't aware of the implications of either the diagnosis or treatment on fertility. So we have lots and lots of guidance out there now. We know as oncologists and haematologists treating these children and young people that it's absolutely vital to bring this up at diagnosis and have a very open and forthright discussion with the patient and their family. Of course, it depends on, on the, the child's age and, and level of maturity um, to very clearly say what the perceived risk is to fertility and also if there are any potential fertility preservation techniques that are available to that patient. Um, and not only that, but then, for example, if a child was diagnosed when they were four or five, you're not going to have that discussion with them. But if I'm in my clinic and I have a 14 or 15 year old survivor coming to see me, then that is a very large area of the conversations that we have where we talk about the implications on fertility, um, has their diagnosis affected it? Has their treatment affected it? 
have they any options? And what we also have the option to do now is to refer our patients in their later teenage years to the Marian Fertility Clinic, where they can actually explore their, what their fertility is at that time. A diagnosis of childhood cancer is overwhelming. As a charity founded by parents who have walked this road, Childhood Cancer Foundation Ireland is here to help others to navigate this journey. From information and advice on dealing with diagnosis to getting through treatment and providing links to cancer support groups and peer-to-peer -peer support, you can access essential information on our website, childhoodcancer.ie. To help us to continue our services, please text GOLD to 50300 and donate four euro or visit childhoodcancer.ie for more. Every single time I bring up fertility with the family at diagnosis, they almost look at it as a source of hope. Mm. Because you're talking about fertility, that means you're talking about the future, which implies that their child has a future. And so I find that families almost grasp onto that conversation because they see that as a beacon of hope that we're even discussing that. So it often becomes a less sensitive subject than you might think. Speaking of beacons of hope, early diagnosis is key. Mm -hmm. Now, every single cancer is different. Every illness is different. Every child is different. But in your role, do you see common signs and symptoms? You know, I think early diagnosis is definitely very important, Sinead, and, and there's, there's really three components to that. I think first, as you've alluded to, is, you know, the awareness of symptoms by, by families and healthcare providers, and, and maybe in a minute we can go through some of those. Um, but also it's, you know, that a child and family would have access to early evaluation and diagnostics and staging and also access to prompt treatment. Um, and because we're in a country where we have a very established, you know, National Childhood Cancer Programme, um, then I think number two and three are covered. We don't have waiting lists in paediatric hematology and oncology. We get a referral, they're seen within days. Um, and, you know, that's something we're very proud of. But I think the awareness of symptoms by families and healthcare providers is, is very important. Now, what's really difficult about that is that, you know, identifying it can be really tricky because often the symptoms of childhood cancer can be really the same as for many other childhood illnesses. For example, you know, vomiting, you know, if a child is vomiting, then 99.999% of the time, they just have a tummy bug, right? Or they've eaten something funny. Um, but maybe in the 0.001% of the time, maybe it's the first sign that the child has a brain tumour, you know? And so that's why it's really tricky. Um, and I think some of the key things are that I think a parent's gut instinct is very important. I never ignore that. If a parent is really, really worried and feels there's something wrong, then often there's something wrong. Um, I also think one of the other really important signs is that you know, children generally recover quite quickly from common childhood illnesses. You know, they're so resilient. One minute they're puking their guts up for the day and the next minute they're out in the playground two days later. So it may be that a child isn't just getting better as quickly as they should. Um, from from that tummy bug, you know, it might raise a little few red flags, but some other general common symptoms would be 
if a child was feeling really tired and exhausted all the time and they looked much paler than usual, if they were having lots and lots of infections that don't go away or keep coming back. Now, I think it's important to say that in the toddler age group to have between six and 12 viral infections in a year is completely normal. Um, but, you know, if you have a six or seven year old that's having infection after infection after infection, that might raise a little red flag. If they're having flu-like symptoms that just aren't going away, unexplained or excessive bleeding, um, persistent and unexplained sweating at night can sometimes be a sign, particularly in teenagers, uh, of a lymphoma. Aches and pains that don't go away. So, you know, if a child has a pain in an arm and a leg that's just really persistent and interfering with the things that they want to do and maybe waking them up at night, that's always um, a bit of a red flag symptom. I mean, I think the more obvious ones are a little bit easier. You know, if, if a parent noticed a new lump or bump that wasn't there before, of course, then they would have that investigated. Um, and brain tumours, which is my own specific area of interest, they can be particularly difficult to diagnose because the symptoms can be really vague. So I would say if a child has really persistent bad headaches um, with dizziness and vomiting, or a new squint, they're kind of things that need to be investigated. Now, the first thing really that a family should do in that scenario is the first port of call is always the GP, unless your child appears exceptionally unwell, in which case I would say go to the emergency department. Um, and they will always talk you through your concerns and help you with the next steps. What's really helpful as well is if the family makes a list of the symptoms and keeps a diary mm. of kind of the trajectory of the symptoms, that's always really useful. But what I always say to families as well is that remember that, you know, GPs see thousands of patients every year and in the vast majority of cases, it's not cancer. And, and typically a GP might see one case of childhood cancer every few years. So even though childhood cancer is something that I look after every day, it's really not common in the general population. Because even as you're going through those, I'm thinking myself, but that could be growing pains. Exactly. That because they didn't drink enough water that day. Could that be, you know, I, I'm rationalizing it, prob it. It probably is. Um, and, and, you know, this is what I do every day. And I remember one specific occasion when my own son had a really bad headache for maybe three or four days in a row and he had had some vomits and I thought, oh my God, mm -hmm. you know, and, and I, I know about this and I know how to rationalize it. And then still I was thinking, could he have a brain tumor? And then all of a sudden he got better. So it was that he just had a viral illness. So that's why I think that the parents got feeling and those common vague symptoms that are just not going away, they're persisting. I think that's really the key. And even if it's just a few days and you're worried, I think the GP is an excellent, excellent resource and so knowledgeable. So I would always recommend to go to the GP unless your child looks very, very unwell, in which case, of course, you go straight to the emergency department. What you said there about how brilliant it is that we don't have waiting lists, that we do have immediate access to diagnosis yeah. and care. It's fantastic. But interestingly, from recording the other episodes, I felt as though the common theme was your life is upended immediately. You are on this treatment path immediately. Yeah. And that that was quite overwhelming and scary. I'm, I'm hearing it from your perspective as a, that's a fantastic. Point. Yeah, yeah. That, 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 that is so fantastic. That is, that we need to be celebrating that. And of course, you know, it's important to say as well that it varies completely from diagnosis to diagnosis. There are certain types of childhood cancer 
that need very low intensity treatment. Um, and, you know, lots of my patients go to school every day um, and do lots of those nice, normal things. And I'm just this minor inconvenience that they see now and again. And I'm asking them what news they have for me. And it goes right up to the end of the spectrum where um, there are more aggressive types of childhood cancers whereby a child might need admission to hospital for months on end um, and then there's everything in between um, and so I can't even imagine how families go from completely normal life and maybe thinking their child has a tummy bug mm. to suddenly needing things like surgery and chemotherapy and radiotherapy and it's just it, it's too much um, and we try to hold the families and walk with them on this path as much as we can but really, at the end of the day, I don't think there is any way of sugarcoating or making it better once you tell someone their child has cancer. I really don't. Which I think was one of the purposes of this podcast, um, because it's such a lonely diagnosis and lonely road too. Thankfully, you know, family, most families in Ireland will never have to experience this. But for those that do, it's so incredibly important to have as many people as possible holding them and walking that path. Mm. And the best people that can do that are those that have heard those words, who have felt it and been there and have come out the other side or have lost, but have a, have, can share in that grief and can talk to people just from a position of, I was there and I know how you feel. And I think that's the value of what you're doing with this podcast, actually, Sinead. Uh, I think it's really important that you know, I think firstly, a take home message should be that cancer in children is actually a huge success story of the last few years. You know, most of our, the vast majority of our patients survive their illness and go on about their lives. And we're just this awful memory that scars their parents' heart forever. Um, but it has a huge impact and there's no, there's no way that you can say that it doesn't. Do you often see parents who feel like they're blaming themselves or mm. they're being unkind to themselves somehow? A lot. How do you medicalize and bring them back to the facts of the cancer? You know, in fact, it's one of the first things I say to families when I give the diagnosis at the beginning. One of the things I always say is this is not because of anything you have done or not because of anything you have not done as a parent. This is just really, really awful, awful luck. Because it's the first question that people will ask is why, you know, why me, why my child? And children's cancers are so different to adult cancers. Uh, I'm not suggesting for a second that anyone ever deserves a cancer diagnosis, but there are specific um, things that make developing a cancer more likely. For example, if you smoke, you're more likely to get lung cancer. Um, and of course, uh, children aren't doing anything like that. Um, recent research has shown that we believe at least 10% of children have something about themselves within their makeup their, and their DNA that makes the development of cancer more likely. Um, and we're learning lots more about that as time goes on. But for the vast majority of our patients, it really is genuinely awful luck and in no way related to anything that their parents have or haven't done. I, I've, I've heard it all. You know, a lot of mums particularly say, for example, is it because I, you know, 
breastfed for three months instead of six months? Is it because I heated up the food in the microwave? Is it because I was using a mobile phone? You know, all of these different things that probably come into their heads at 2 a.m. when they can't sleep, right? You know, I'm a mom too. I have those thoughts all the time. But the, the answer is absolutely not. And we know because, you know, there's thousands of people researching childhood cancer all over the world every day. And if it was something that was that simple, then we'd know. Mm. Um, and so I always try to reassure people as much as I can that it's certainly through no fault of their own that something like this happened. It's a huge barrier to overcome mentally. Huge. But so important to hear that and to hear that from... <laughs> from the doctor, from the person sitting across the table, you know, with the letters after their name, with the qualifications, with the, the medical knowledge, it's such an important thing to get across. And it goes both ways too for the, the very small number of children that don't survive their cancer. Um, there's often a lot of parental guilt there as well that, you know, was there a stone that was left unturned? Have they searched for everything? And I find that is almost even more difficult um, in terms of being able to comfort people um, because it's just an unimaginable trauma that I don't think people ever truly get over um, to go through something like that. And I think trying to comfort those families is um, a huge part of my job, but also something that I take very seriously. And when a child dies from their cancer, it's something that every member of our team feels very deeply. Um, and, you know, for the children that have died from their cancer, I remember each and every one of them. We talk about them all often. And in many instances, we go on and have relationships with the families afterwards and, and chat on the phone every now and again. Um, but it's trying to comfort the sense of grief and guilt that those families sometimes carry is also very very difficult because you're in it with them completely completely and even especially during covid times right because there was restrictions on visiting and um, whereas before you would often have parents and grandparents and aunts and uncles on the ward providing that kind of support network for the family but for the last year and a half it has been one parent allowed in so in a sense, you almost become part of the family because, you know, you're seeing them every day. You're not chatting about medicine all the time. It's just human nature that you're chatting about all sorts of other things that are going on in, in everybody's life. Um, and so, like I said a while ago, it's, it's part of my job that I love, but it's also very, very difficult because you also feel the loss of that child. And everybody in the team is devastated when that happens. It's a very intimate time, I think, you know, it's really just parents and a child there at the birth. And that's a very special time when the child comes into the world. And equally, I think it's a very special and intimate time and heartbreaking if a child is to leave the world. And so we do discuss that as a team afterwards where we talk about how it went and we talk about how we can support the family going forward and support team members if they're very upset. And also we invite families back at a time when they feel ready, because it might be that they have questions afterwards they want answered or, you know, more commonly in my experience is that a family want to come back two or three months later and 
you know, even in the last few months, I was meeting a family of a patient of mine that died and we spent two or three hours laughing and crying about different things that that beautiful little girl had done um, along her journey. And it, it was more like a wake <laughs> than a medical meeting. Um, and I, I really feel very privileged that I'm allowed into that aspect of a family's life. When it comes to childhood cancer, it's more than just medical. Mm. We talked about that with the play specialist, Rebecca, but I'm getting mm. that from you too. You're an essential support, an emotional support, a mental health support, and a medical support. What supports you? Because <laughs> I, that, that's a lot to carry. You know what it is? Um... It is sometimes. I'd be, as I said to you at the beginning, I'd be lying if I said I didn't take it home. Uh, but I, and I know everybody probably says that when you talk to them, but I feel so lucky with the team I have around me. You know, I'm just one of many doctors and nurses and physios and social workers and pharmacists that are part of this team. And we all carry each other. Um, as well as that, I have a long suffering husband who puts up with my very long hours. <laughs> Um, but we all just support each other and on a day that maybe I'm feeling a bit down in the dumps about something I know before 10 o'clock someone will have left a bar of chocolate on my desk and we all do little things like that for each other and I think you know it does help to be in an environment you know I think in the medical profession it's sometimes seen as something to be ashamed of if you're upset at work, it's some in some ways seen as an unprofessional thing. Uh, you know, I, I disagree wholeheartedly uh, with that. Um, I think showing your feelings in an appropriate way um, is actually something to be proud of. Now, I think if it gets to the stage where I'm not able to do my job and I'm not able to discuss diagnosis and treatment plans with families, then that's a problem. But I think appropriate grief that's well managed is very appropriate. And to be honest, the day that I am not sad that a child dies of cancer, then I think it's time to hang up the stethoscope. I, I, I think I'll never be OK with that because it's not OK. Um, and I know that I speak for all of my wonderful colleagues when I say that. But as you said before, there are more good days than bad. And I'm sure your team are surrounding you in the celebration when a child is well and when you see that good news. Sinead, as I said at the beginning, you know, well in excess of 80% of our patients are long-term survivors. Nothing makes me happier than to be in my clinic and see, you know, the kids barreling in in their school uniforms. They don't want to be there. They're too busy. They have to go to their hurling or their GAA and they're just living very full lives. And that's um, part of our jobs that keeps us going. And thankfully, that is for the vast majority of our patients. You know, it's a real childhood cancer is a real success story. And I really feel that throughout my career and lifetime, things are only going to get better. It's a success story because of people like you who, who pursue these careers. No doubt you make huge sacrifices yourself with those long hours. And all of the medical training that you've put yourself through. But because of people like you that do this, our children can get well. Thanks, Sinead. I'm also very Irish and unable to take a compliment. <laughs> I might have to ask you to edit that part out. I won't. That's staying in, I'm afraid, because it's true. It is true. If we didn't have people with the knowledge that you have, how could our children get better? So thank you for doing what you do. And thank you for giving me your time today. 
it's endless support is what I'm hearing is what you provide for families and I hope we've gotten this that across through this conversation so thank you thank so you much. very much thanks Janet. lovely to talk to you thank you for listening to this gold ribbon conversation with dr sarah curry there are more gold ribbon stories written by those fighting childhood cancer on our website childhoodcancer.ie or through the link in our show notes by rating leaving a review or sharing this podcast across social using hashtag gold ribbon conversations you can help this podcast to reach more families. This podcast was produced by The Brand Story for Childhood Cancer Foundation Ireland, hosted by Sinead O'Moore and sound production by Alan Breslin.